I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Focus on the man ahead, on the point man. Watch, listen, be aware. That's the training, but it's another matter altogether in the field. The breeze rustles the leaves. Small animals slip into shadows. Be calm. One figment of imagination can trigger a firefight. Keep your wits about you or men could get killed. In the remote central highlands of South Vietnam, soldiers moved quietly through the dense foliage of the rainforest. Every step could be their last, packs dripping with humidity, ammo strung around their necks, twigs creaking and cracking beneath their boots. No one talked, everyone listened, alert to any sound of the enemy hiding in the trees. It's 1965 and the first cavalry, Air Mobile, just dumped this platoon into a middle-of-nowhere search-and-destroy mission to locate a Viet Cong guerrilla force. The troops are new to combat in a war they had not started, in a nation none of them has ever known. Greetings and welcome again to American History Hit. We've got a really enlightening and relevant subject matter today, one which speaks to so much in our modern world, certainly in the ways the U.S. military operates in it. The Vietnam War and its painful lessons still wields enormous influence in the strategic decisions made by American political and military leaders. What transpired for the U.S. in Southeast Asia from the early 1960s engagement and escalation to the mid-70s collapse has become the symbol of global military entanglements that we try to avoid, to varying degrees of success, of course. Vietnam still looms large for Americans, but it's what comes before, in the 1950s, that sets the table for U.S. involvement in the 1960s and 70s. I'm talking about the post-World War II period in Southeast Asia and the struggle there against French colonialism that erupts during these years, developing very quickly into full-blown civil war over political and cultural identity. North Vietnam versus South Vietnam, this internal Vietnamese conflict that just a few years later, the United States somehow makes its own at great sacrifice of American lives and treasure. Still a deep wound we suffer to this day. So let us talk today about those formative events, the history of what came before what we call the Vietnam War, with the guidance and perspective of a man who knows so much about it. Professor Pierre Asselin, 
holds the Dwight E. Stanford Chair in American Foreign Relations in the Department of History at San Diego State University. Hello, Pierre. Welcome. It's great to be on your show, Don. Thanks for having me. Pierre, first, let me plug your accomplishments so folks really understand. You have authored numerous books and publications, but it's the trilogy of Vietnam that interests me for today. A Bitter Peace, Washington, Hanoi, and the Making of the Paris Agreement then Hanoi's Road to the Vietnam War, 1954-65, and most recently, Vietnam's American War, a history. You are an authority on the subject, even edited Cambridge History of Vietnam. I mean, you're the font of knowledge here. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Let's start at the beginning. As I say, in the 20th century, it's the end of World War II. Give me a bit of geography here. What's different than is today? A place called Indochina. You know, Indochina, like much of the rest of Southeast Asia, had previously been colonized by foreign powers. So, you know, the Dutch were in Indonesia, right? The British were in Burma and Malaya and Singapore, and then the French were in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, collectively known as, as Indochina. And colonialism had been in Indochina for the better part of 80 years by the time of World War II. And World War II really changes everything. The, the Japanese invasion and occupation of Indochina effectively puts an end to French colonialism. The French will try to return to the area after the Second World War as part of their effort to kind of reclaim their dignity, right, following the humiliations they suffered in both Europe and Asia. Yeah. But at that point, the Vietnamese have begun organizing and will eventually kind of resist this effort by France to reclaim Vietnam as the Dutch would attempt to reclaim Indonesia. And that's the overview of really what we're talking about today. So let's break this down a little bit more. World War II comes along. The Japanese are moving on into Southeast Asia all over the place. One important factor here is that the French are defeated in France by the Germans. And that surrender in 1940 has repercussions all around the world. One place in particular is Indochine, they call it, Indochina. Yeah. Hanoi being the capital of all of that activity. I just want to back you up to my last question. The geography is important here for Americans, particularly to understand. When the French are there, there's no Vietnam as we know it today. There's no Laos. There's no Cambodia. Those three nations are together, that entire French colony. Yeah. They were there for a long, long time. Then there's Siam, which eventually becomes Thailand. It's just important to understand how large this possession is, so-called possession, that has been very controversial all along. There's always been, like in any of these nations, these bubbling up nationalist yeah. movements. And certainly that's been going on in Vietnam all the way along, correct? Yes. And that's the thing, right? I mean, in terms of geography, Southeast Asia and specifically Indochina, very, very important. From Indochina, you can technically access two oceans, right? It's a gateway to the Pacific. It's also kind of a point of access to the Indian Ocean. And then there's an abundance of natural resources, which is the reason the Japanese went in there in the first place, right? So you have coal and rubber in Vietnam. Your Michelin tires well, the Michelins were two brothers who owned the plantation in Vietnam, right? So rubber, coal is something the Japanese are after. They're after tin and oil in Malaysia. So the area has always kind of been important, but it becomes especially significant in the context of World War II. And for the Americans, after World War II, as we know, right, this is the emergence of the U.S. as a global power. Sure. So the U.S. more than ever will need the resources the area has to offer. And that will also kind of magnify American interest in the region. It's the Japanese invasion that's the grenade that gets yeah. thrown into this whole area and sort of blows apart the structure that had been imposed upon it by the French. 
at that point, then, of course, France or the Allies, anyway, we win the war in World War II, and France reemerges and comes back to what they had lost and tries to sort of regain it. But the cat's out of the bag, if that's the saying. It's too late. Way too much has happened in that short period of time for them to conveniently put it all back together. And that's where we begin to get into a war, the Indochina War, between these new forces at work. Under the leadership of a leader we must talk about right from the get-go, Ho Chi Minh. Tell me about this man. So for a lot of Americans, right, I mean, particularly the people who were very favorable to the anti-American perspective during the Vietnam War, Ho Chi Minh was a misunderstood individual, right? He was only pretending to be a communist when deep down he was a nationalist, right? And, and the failure of the U.S. to recognize that is what led to the whole tragedy of the 60s and 70s. Mm. I've been working in the Vietnamese archives, you know, you mentioned my books, right? I'm a specialist of the Vietnamese communist experience in, in all of this. And it's very clear that Ho Chi Minh is a devout Marxist-Leninist, but he understands also kind of the importance of pretending to be a nationalist to appeal to various constituencies, including people in France and then eventually people in the United States. So Ho Chi Minh is a communist. After the Japanese surrender to the Allies, uh, technically no one is really in charge in Vietnam, right? There's a power vacuum in Vietnam. And then Ho Chi Minh basically steps in, declares the independence of Vietnam. And that's where very often we start our story, right? And then the French return. What I think we fail to understand is that when Ho Chi Minh declares the independence of Vietnam, there are other political parties, non-communist or anti-communist political parties in Vietnam who actually oppose what they see and what in fact was a communist power grab. And eventually kind of a civil war breaks out between and among Vietnamese. All of this before the French return. And that's really, really important. The civil war dynamics of the French war and the American war are really essential to understand why everything becomes so violent and bloody in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. I don't want to leave Ho Chi Minh because he's a fascinating example of something that gets repeated many times in these situations for American military. You have these forces that actually look up to America in revolutionary circumstances. Circumstances. It happens in Cuba, in all kinds of places around the world. But we are a shining light of what they are trying to accomplish about getting out from the yoke of tyranny, which is what we were invented for, you know. And so one of those great examples is Ho Chi Minh, who spent a good deal of time in the United States in his young life. He was a busboy at the Parker House in Boston. Parker House rolls were made there, a very notable hotel in, in Boston. I mean, this guy was very, very familiar and admired the United States a great deal. This has happened several times. It frustrates me, you know, historically speaking, how many times we have squandered the opportunity to have a relationship with these people that we end up fighting against so tragically. Ho Chi Minh's right at the top of that list. So, Don, this is very interesting. One of my colleagues has been looking at Ho Chi Minh in the United States. As it turns out, there's not a single record of him working anywhere in the U.S. Really? Yes, including Boston and Philly. Am I wrong? No, 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 no. So everybody assumes that, and that's certainly the message that the communists themselves in Vietnam have been presenting. But in terms of actual evidence, you're not wrong. Everybody believes that to this date. But this one colleague, the only piece of evidence she's found is a postcard that was sent by her Presumably, I think from that's postcard from New York City. Wow. But that's the thing. It's a postcard. So maybe he sent it himself or somebody else sent it for him. 
But in terms of actual evidence, because all the stories are there. You worked, I just even a restaurant in Philly with a plaque somewhere that says Ho Chi Minh worked here. Yes, I'm from Philadelphia. I remember that too. My colleague went to the restaurant and asked to see personal files. And there's nothing indicating that Ho Chi Minh or someone like him, because he changed his name 175 times or so in the course of his life, actually worked there. So this could be part of, I call it the cult of Ho's personality, right? That was manufactured by Ho Chi Minh himself and others. To create this image of him as a very worldly individual, he was worldly, but a lot of what we say about Ho Chi Minh in the United States was actually deliberately manufactured to make it seem like this is a guy that, that was a nationalist first and foremost, and a communist second. And again, all of that, I would argue, was missed. Crazy. Well, you're hearing it first, folks. <laughs> I have egg all over my face and I welcome it because seriously, I mean, I did a television show and we were at the Parker House and it was all very given that this was the fact of life. And Don, there are documentaries about this, but the colleague in question, she's at Texas A&M. Her name is Olga Dror. She speaks French, Russian, Vietnamese for the last almost decade or if not more. She's been looking into Ho Chi Minh and her findings are absolutely fascinating. But so far, what stands out is just the absolute lack of evidence that he was ever in the U.S. Wow. Again, it's possible that all of these things are true, but there's no paper trail. And of course, as historians, without a paper trail, we have to question what we thought we do about, in this case, about Ho Chi Minh in the U.S. Understood. Another angle on this colonial struggle that's happening is the Algeria factor. You know, France, they're like all these Western powers, clinging to the grandiose vision of empire. And in France's case, one of their other areas is Algeria, which is a very, very pressing and soon to be very violent situation for them right into the 60s. And it's right across the Mediterranean, so it's going to be that much more present. It's going to end up in a massive political repercussions in France. So at this point, it's kind of like a two-front war, if not more. And Vietnam's going to get the short shrift as far as their fight goes. And that's why things go the way it does right to 1954, when there is a peace made between the French and the Vietnamese people at the Geneva Accords, correct? Yes, that's correct. The French will fight in Vietnam for eight years. And one of the things that the French will do that makes the war so violent is that they will exploit this, the so-called civil war dynamics I mentioned earlier. So a lot of Vietnamese end up fighting with and for the French, not because they want the French to recolonize Vietnam, because they consider the communists a bigger threat to what Vietnam should become, right? That war ends, and then from there, the French decide to get involved in Algeria, right? Having failed in Vietnam, yeah. then it becomes doubly important to retain Algeria, and they'll lose that as well. You're mentioning something I should really point out. The whole scenario, the whole stage that's going on that's being played upon in Vietnam has two different things happening at the same time. You have this war against the French, against the colonial power, but at the same time, you have a civil war between at least two factions, I'm sure yeah. there's more, of the Vietnamese people who are the North Vietnamese, led by Ho Chi Minh, have a vision for a communist country, whereas the South are sort of going down that Republican version of what can happen. Obviously, the United States is going to side with the South, and that's when this kind of emerges. But let's cover 1954 first. So the Geneva Accords seemingly settle this whole thing. This is where you get the breakup of the countries and how everything's going to be a new day in Southeast Asia, right? Yeah, basically, the 54 Accords kind of formalize the state of civil war, right, by creating two separate Vietnams. Mm. Now, what's really important to understand, Don, is that contrary to popular belief, the Geneva Accords don't create two states of Vietnam. Technically, the DMZ, the 17th parallel, is merely a demarcation between two what they call regroupment zones. So after eight years of fighting to put an end to the war and make sure that the ceasefire doesn't break down, it's decided in Geneva that the forces loyal to Ho Chi Minh and the communists are going to regroup to the area north of the 17th parallel and those loyal 
to the state of Vietnam that becomes the Republic of Vietnam, the non-communist Vietnam, will regroup to the area south of the 17th parallel. And then within two years, right, a nationwide referendum is supposed to be held to bring about reunification under either the northern regime, which is communist-dominated, or the southern regime, which is non-communist-dominated. Important to point out, this is happening side by side with the whole Korea yeah. dilemma and the settling of that issue with the U.S. and, and North Korea and, and China, right? For the Americans, right? Korea kind of validates all these fears about communist aggression in Asia, right? Before Korea, the Americans are not really interested in what's happening in Indochina. Mm -hmm. The French will beg for American assistance because France is really lacking in terms of natural resources, right? All of its money is going towards rebuilding France itself. But, you know, the victory of Chinese communists in the Chinese Civil War in 1949, the Soviet detonation of an atomic bomb in August of 49, and then the outbreak of the Korean War in the summer of 1950. All of these things are going to amplify American concerns about what's happening in Indochina and eventually prompt the Americans to really get behind France, not because they're fighting a colonial war, but because now suddenly in American eyes, they're fighting an anti-communist war. We'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. While you're listening, make sure you never miss another episode by clicking like and follow. And while you're at it, please share this episode with a friend or family member. You're our best means for building our audience, and we are most grateful for the help. Thank you so much. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Throughout this conversation, it's my job to keep reminding folks that we're not even there yet in Vietnam. What this is, is the seeds being planted. And what you see in Korea, which is such a tragic and awkward war that goes on there in so many ways, is what the Americans are trying to avoid replicating in Vietnam later on. It does not work out very well, but that's the idea. But what happens at the Geneva Accords supposedly puts a stop to all this and gets people to yeah. agree to things. The splitting, just like North Korea and South Korea, we've got North Vietnam and South Vietnam the same way. All part of this domino theory, which begins with Truman, of let's get in the way of this spreading cancer of communism around the world. And that's going to happen right here. 
There is one event that's very important to point out, which is in 1956, the Geneva Accords agree that there will be free and fair elections in 1956 in which the Vietnamese people will choose how they want to, to be governed. But that election never happens, does it? No, it doesn't. And again, right, so this is very interesting because by conventional wisdom, right, it doesn't happen because the Americans want to preclude it. And then America's so-called puppet in Saigon, right, President Diem, also doesn't want to hold a referendum because presumably they know they're going to lose. So again, right, I've been working in the archives in Hanoi for 20 years. Mm. As it turns out, by 1956, the North is a mess. Ho Chi Minh is really struggling on all levels. People are starving. It's a really, really messy place. Eventually, things will get better. But as of 56, it's, it's a terrible place. Meanwhile, in the South, President Diem has been doing everything right. So I would argue, Don, and I'm, I'm almost convinced that if a random had actually been held, and somehow, right, you could have had free and fair elections in South Vietnam, but also in communist North Vietnam. And as we all know, communists don't really do fair elections, right? But assuming that you could have done that, I'm almost 100% certain that ZM would have won that election, simply because by then he'd been doing a lot of things right in the South and nothing was going right for Ho Chi Minh in the North. The history you read about you know, often takes the standpoint that it was the South that resisted the elections, right? So that's something to be rewritten, huh? Don, there's a colleague of mine who once said that we're due for revolution in Vietnam studies. And he's absolutely right. If you look at the books on Vietnam, they all recycle the same interpretations, the same tropes, right? I think we're comfortable reading what we think we know. And, you know, the war in Vietnam, I mean, it still divides people, right? Either it was a noble cause and the U.S. did everything right, or the U.S. did nothing right. Right. And, you know, I mean, if we just use common sense here, right, history is never like that. Right. And especially when you look at the war in Vietnam, it's so great. And there's been a complete failure on our part to kind of make the effort to reassess some of sure. the most basic assumptions about it. And all we've been doing is perpetuating them. Right. Well, look how difficult it is to tell the American Civil War, let alone go over and parse out everything that happened with Vietnam. I mean, that's exactly it, right? I mean, the more we study the American Civil War, the more we realize how many layers there are to it. And, you know, Vietnam is, especially with this internationalization, right? I mean, there are so many layers to what's happening there. And somehow we like these simple explanations, right? We love them. Because in a way, they validate not just American policy choices, but the personal choices of Americans themselves, right? The people who were there during the Vietnam War are the people who end up writing those books about Vietnam. And it becomes important sure. to kind of validate, you know, my support or opposition to the war back then. It's a very, very difficult subject matter for Americans to sit with and try to look at objectively. You've mentioned a leader several times we should define, Diem. He was the president in South Vietnam, right? Yes, that's correct. And President Diem or Ziem in, or Yem in Vietnamese, right? So he comes into the picture during the negotiations in Geneva, and he's brought in to basically look after the non-communist South. He's first mm. prime minister of what becomes South Vietnam, and eventually it's president. And again, right, I mean, for the longest time, he was demonized by American historians, right? He was a puppet of the Americans. He was a stooge, a lackey of the West, and so on and so forth. So over the recent past, some of my colleagues have been digging through the archives of that government. And right now, the consensus among Vietnam historians is that President Diem was actually a committed nationalist. He was absolutely right. He was dictatorial. He was nepotistic. And he was a very, very flawed leader. But he was a genuinely committed anti-non-communists who wanted kind of a more pluralistic society in the South, but in the process was kind of encumbered by the threat to his regime caused by Ho Chi Minh and his armies. So tell me how this civil war plays out. So it begins as a kind of contest 
for, I call it the soul of Vietnam in 45, 46, right? Between communists led by Ho Chi Minh and then a variety of non-communist and anti-communist parties. And in terms of how it unfolds, right? The communists are eventually able to get their act together. But then those who oppose the communists will always remain deeply fractured and divided. And eventually when Diem becomes president of South Vietnam for a period, everyone's going to rally behind him, right? He's going he's to become kind of the opposition to Ho Chi Minh, right? So Ho Chi Minh dominates the communist North and then Diem dominates the non-communist South. But very quickly, because of the way Diem governs, these fractures and divisions will start erupting and slowly but gradually make kind of a mess out of the South, which the communists will capitalize upon. But these tensions among and between Vietnamese will be exploited for eight years by France, which will basically serve to exacerbate the divide between communists mm -hmm. and non-communists and then continue to amplify during the ZM period and then during mm -hmm. the period of the American War after 65. And what was it that they wanted from each other? Why couldn't they live side by side? So some people want a lot of democracy. Others want a little bit of democracy. Some people believe that religious freedoms are important. Others think that religious freedoms can undermine the fabric of society. When we talk about Vietnamese political factions, we always talk about the communists, right? But there's about 20 other sizable groups in Vietnam. And again, each of which has its own vision for what Vietnam should look like. And some of them are really sizable and they have their own militias, their own military. And then, you know, the whole anti-communist aspect eventually comes and plays into this, but you know, you have like basically pseudo fascist parties, right? You have very, very kind of liberal, almost socialist parties. It really is like a very, very colorful political landscape. And that's good on the one hand, but then it can be problematic when you confront a threat such as the one that the communists would pause coming from the North. In 1963, the war probably would have ended had there not been international involvement. How would that have occurred? So this is very interesting, right? It's a very, very interesting question. To me, Don, like the war gets internationalized in 1950. And that's really the mm. point of no return. Because, you know, by 1950, the Americans are there, the Soviets are there, the Chinese are there. Eventually, the whole socialist camp is involved. And so is the whole so-called free world also. I think by 1963, it's almost impossible to not have a continuation of hostilities in Vietnam. Of course, it would have been great if somehow this could have been avoided, right? I just don't see it because too many countries had invested too much of their resources, of their prestige in Vietnam to let it go by. And I think that's the problem for the Americans, right? Kennedy, we now know, wasn't going to pull out of Vietnam unless the situation improved. This whole idea of, oh, if Kennedy had lived, right? Kennedy is very clear that the U.S. will pull out if conditions improve, and they never did. And then for Johnson, I mean, Johnson has no choice, I think. But was it purely a staging ground of the Cold War, or is this still a resource-rich nation that people want things from? What are the stakes? The resources are there, but, you know, to me, the only people who actually cared about what was happening in Vietnam itself were the Vietnamese. For everyone mm -hmm. else, and, and that's the thing, the Vietnamese are really enabled by the outside, right? If it wasn't yeah. for American support on one side, Soviet-Chinese support, and Soviet support on the other, there's no way that war becomes as deadly as it turned out to be, right? Mm -hmm. So foreigners kind of enable Vietnam. But to me, Vietnam becomes the tragedy that it was because of the Cold War. Yeah. This is kind of the, a Cold War crucible. This is where the free world will prove its merits. And this is where for the Soviets and the Chinese, the so-called progressive world will prove that its system is better than capitalism. Diem was assassinated in 63, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Who killed him? So again, right, there's a, a consensus in the U.S. that the U.S. killed him, right? Mm. The U.S. is involved in the coup, but fundamentally, 
the people who remove Ziem from power are his old generals. Mm -hmm. Ziem was contemplating neutralization or at a minimum negotiations with certain communist elements in South Vietnam. And that made some elements of his military, namely kind of staunch anti-communists, very, very uncomfortable. So they want to act. And then America's role is basically the American kind of facilitate this by telling the generals before the coup, listen, if you guys were to remove ZM, we'd be okay with that. Yeah. To put all of this on the Americans, I think it simplifies things a little. It seems like traditional history, if you want to call it that, you know, popular history anyway, indicates that the Americans were basically wanting to create a, a similar scenario as Korea, right? Divide the country. Yeah. We'll, we'll take half of it. We'll feed it and thrive. It's just like South Korea is a hugely successful yeah. economy. And North Korea is left to its own devices and will, as we see it, eventually fade and die off. And then country is renewed, not unlike what happened in Germany. We're following that same path in Vietnam in the early 60s, right? Absolutely. Shortly after the Geneva Accords, like each regime in North and South Vietnam will want to reclaim jurisdiction over all of Vietnam, right? And essentially over time, the communists will maintain that stance, right? For them, Vietnam has to be whole again. And in the South, specifically under Diem and then his followers, there will be a consensus that, well, we'll be fine just keeping South Vietnam as a non-communist, anti-communist entity. And the Americans eventually kind of endorse that position, right? For the U.S., don't remember, right? In Korea, there's an effort to roll back communism. Yes. It's not just containment, it's roll back. And it's an absolute disaster because it provokes Chinese intervention. And essentially, it leads to, we call it a draw, but it's really a loss for the Americans, right? Yeah. And then the Americans don't want to repeat that in Vietnam. So there's talk of invading the North, but that's very, very quickly abandoned. But then it's all about preserving the South consistent with, you mentioned it earlier, right? This containment policy. Mm -hmm. That's an article of faith for all American presidents after Truman. So the Americans really want to maintain South Vietnam as a non-communist entity. Right. And that fails, right? That objective fails. Ho Chi Minh. I mean, did they develop their military abilities as a nation, the North Vietnamese I'm speaking of, in the Civil War, in this colonial war, to a point that they felt confident about taking on the United States of America? This is such a great question, right? So again, popular consensus is that Ho Chi Minh was leading an army of peasants and that the United States was defeated by peasants, right? I mean, we've seen the movies, right? Yeah. They wear their pajamas these conical hats and they're wearing sandals. As it turns out, and you know, veterans will attest to that, right? The North Vietnamese army was, as of the time that the Americans come in, one of the most disciplined, best equipped, experienced militaries in the entire world. You know, starting in 4950, they start getting massive assistance from the Chinese and the Soviets, right? People are coming from China, the Soviet Union, even from Cuba to train these guys. I mean, as of 54, by the time the French war comes to an end and the Geneva Accords are signed, the North Vietnamese army, what becomes the North Vietnamese army, is essentially a multi-divisional army. Mm. And then they have 10 years to refine their skills. So in a way, by the time the American war begins in Vietnam, the outcome, you could argue, has already been decided because the Americans don't have the experience these guys have. Remember, right? These guys have been fighting the French for eight years. By the time the Americans come in, they've tried a bunch of stuff. Whatever worked, they perpetuate. Whatever doesn't, they dismiss. So they know exactly what they're doing. And mm. we shouldn't be surprised by the outcome based on that. And they've also developed a type of warfare very appropriate to the geography. And they're fighting on their home territory in a way that works. Absolutely. And this is the other element done, right? As they pursue what they call military struggle, right? The attrition of U.S. and South Vietnamese forces. They also engage in what we call a hearts and minds campaign inside mm. Vietnam, but they also do the same internationally. 
they really go after the international community because they realize that if they somehow can successfully sell their war effort to the rest of the world, that in itself will make it more difficult for the Americans to prosecute their war in Vietnam. And in terms of understanding that, Don, we only need to see what's happening with Ukraine right now. Right? And Zelensky's ability yeah. to really harness world opinion for the sake of his cause. And, and to me, that's entirely consistent with what the Vietnamese did, the communists did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Sure. That's a perfect modern example. A less modern example is George Washington. Washington. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what he did in the American yes, Revolution. Yeah. And you know, and that's the thing, right? The Americans recognized the need to get external assistance, right? So as much as it was absolutely fundamental to get, in this case, support from France, right? And of course, as a French Canadian, I will tell you that you guys got your freedom because of us. But anyway, we can do that some <laughs> other time. No, but seriously, right? The recognition that sometimes you can't do things alone becomes part of your success. The Vietnamese, the communists, this humility to recognize their limits, that really helped them over the short and long term. After the death of Diem, there's really a vacuum there, isn't there? Yeah. There's no one really who can step in and guide the South Vietnamese at that point. So that really is the door opening to American leadership coming in and saying, this is how it's going to be, if they hadn't already done that by that point. But that's where we come in with the, oh boy, do we know how to fight this kind of war? And it's totally the wrong way to do it. We end up getting locked down for another decade in this whole situation. The way we enter the war is a misunderstood incident for many Americans. Can we talk Talk about the Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So starting in 6061, South Vietnamese commando units are being secretly deployed into North Vietnam to engage in various acts of sabotage. So they distribute fake money, they blow up radar installations, and then they quickly retreat, right? And by 1964, American ships are off the North Vietnamese coast, essentially kind of helping these commando units telling them where to go and, and trying to kind of pick up intercepts from North Vietnam. Now, by official account, those ships are in international waters. Mm. But again, I mean, these are secret missions and that's what American policymakers will claim after. So they probably did venture into Vietnamese territorial waters. But eventually there's an exchange of gunfire on August the 2nd, 1964, and then presumably another one on August 4th, 64. And that's the incident that will lead Congress to basically give Johnson this blank check to wage the war. This is the USS Maddox. Yeah. It comes in contact with three torpedo boats from the North Vietnamese in what is the Gulf of Tonkin. It's confusing how this happens, but it is utilized as an inciting incident requiring a resolution on the part of Congress for the president to take action. There's so much. I mean, we could do an entire show on the Gulf of Tonkin incident because its implications for how Americans then begin fighting wars based on executive power choices rather than necessarily congressional declarations is amazing. Don, you know, you just touch upon something really important. When presidents want a war, they get it. Yeah. And, you know, people make a big deal, oh, the whole Tonkin Gulf, the second incident never happened. This is a war waged on false premises. Well, I mean, if you look at most American wars in history, the premise has been false, right? From the Revolutionary War to the War of 1812 to more recently, Iraq and Afghanistan, right? It's just when presidents want to go to war, they always find a way to have their conflict. Well, let's not forget the uh, Havana. That's exactly it, right? The Spanish-American War, 1898, right? Right. It was a boiler incident, which became a bomb that became a, a war. But we got a lot out of it. It worked out for us pretty well. It really did, right? We're talking about 1964 at this point, the summer of 64, when the Vietnam War, as we know it, 
as an American war really begins. It's at that point that Johnson escalates the troops and continues to do so through 64, 65. That's when the protests begin. That's when everything starts to really get messy in America in terms of Vietnam and everything else for that matter. And Johnson not running for president in the 68 election triggers off a whole nother set of incidents, but it really has its roots in everything we're talking about, which really started before World War II, of course. But the modern version of all that struggle is the Civil War and then the Colonial War and then the Civil War that exists in the 40s and 50s in Vietnam. Fascinating. Sometimes history really, really matters, doesn't it? Todd, you know, I really wish my students could hear you right now because I'm trying to impress <laughs> that upon them, but somehow no one believes me. And so <laughs> I'm shouting it to the, to the airwaves myself. Here's an incident which has just like, I don't know, what's the word for it? It's just gone fallow in people's minds. It was such an unpleasant and painful experience for so many people, even presently, who remember their lost yeah. ones. Not to mention the proud legacy of the American military who had, you know, rightfully won World War II and all the rest that's gone on. Vietnam just got bad, and therefore we've ignored it in terms of understanding and analyzing what really caused it. But once you start to take it apart, dismantle this Gordian knot, you begin to kind of make sense of it more, and it's less painful that way, in my opinion. It makes more sense. Whether the choices were made out of pure and good noble reasons, I don't know, but it at least simplifies it to a degree that you can make sense of it. No, absolutely. The young American men and women who end up in Vietnam at that time, I mean, they give a good account of themselves, right? They're fighting not just kind of these communist armies, but history itself in Vietnam. Yes. And that becomes a real challenge for very young people. There's a vagueness of mission. That's what's really important in this. The Colin Powells, you know, walk away from Vietnam knowing this about this. We get ourselves into other vague missions down the road, but it's really set in stone for the military thinkers. Those people who are saying, we're not going in there without knowing why we're going in there and how we're going to get out of it. That Vietnam really teaches them. When you really look at the history of it, you understand how complicated it really was. Pierre Aslan, it's been great to hear your expertise on this subject. If people want to find out more about your work, your books are A Bitter Peace, Washington, Hanoi, and the Making of the Paris Agreement, and Hanoi's Road to the Vietnam War, 1954 to 1965. Thanks so much for joining me on American History Hit. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Don. Thank you very, very much. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes. Two new episodes dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. This podcast includes music from Epidemic Sound. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.